Hey, happy Father's Day, dads. It is so good to be celebrating with you today. Uh, when my wife, before she met me, she went on a date with a guy. And when they got back to her house, uh, she invited him in, uh, hoping that her parents would still be awake. And they, they walked into the kitchen where the lights were. But apparently, most of the family had gone to bed. Except for her dad, who was out on the back deck. And I've heard a lot of guys say that, you know, when their daughter brings a guy home, they want to be there cleaning the gun to intimidate, right? Well, my father-in-law was not just cleaning a gun. He was on the back deck using his gun, shooting an animal that was trying to make its way into the house. And pop, pop, pop. And then he walks back into the kitchen area, simply looked at the young man, said, hello, and then walked off into the bedroom, which would have been really intimidating if his gun would have been something more than just a little Red Ryder BB gun. And it would have been way more intimidating if he'd been wearing more than just his undies. Now, my wife was mortified, but I'm grateful for that moment with my father-in-law because mission accomplished, that was the one and only date she had with that guy, So, which paved the way for me, and I'm quite grateful. So for all of you dads who are okay embarrassing your kids, for all the dads and dad figures who share your wisdom with us, and you have oh so much of it, for the times that you have fixed the car or fixed the house or broken the house trying to fix it, for all the times you helped us with homework and coached our games and coached our sports and cheered loudest, for all the times that you were there for us to scare away the boogeyman or to help us wipe the dirt on it and keep us going, for all the times you picked us up and helped us keep going, for all those endless dad jokes to pick us up when we're down, even though we say it's not funny. We're laughing inside, dads. For all those times that you have just been there for us to love us and care for us, today we recognize you, we see you, and we celebrate you because we love you. Friends, let's hear it for the dads, right? So today we are in week 24, beginning week 24 of Quest 52. It's a year-long journey with Jesus, not just to learn more about him, but to actually get to know him better. And we're using Quest 52 as our guide through the Gospels this year to help us do that. And if you don't yet have a copy of 52 for yourself, or if you'd like to pick one up for a friend, we have some at a discounted price out the lobby that you can pick up today. And you don't have to begin at chapter one, if you are newer to us, you can just jump right in on week 24, begin where we are, that's okay, and follow along from there. So today, we are going to jump into John chapter five, and really, we're going to see the Father's heart today. So John chapter five. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. We don't know which holy day it was, but we know Jesus loved to be there on the holy days. Well, inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches and crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed people. They would lay on the porches. Now, archaeologists have uncovered this Bethesda pool there in the city. And this is a mock-up. This is a model of what they think that pool looked like. And there's actually two different pools, an upper pool and a lower pool, separated by one of the porches. You see the five porches there. And the sick people would lay in those porches, lay around this area, waiting to get healed. And this is what it looks like. But this 
Bethesda pool was not a Jerusalem, or sorry, it was not a Jewish thing. This was not part of their tradition. This was not the place where the Jewish people went to play in the pool and have fun day at the pool. Especially considering that water looks kind of gross. Now that I look at it, kind of green. <laughs> but this was actually a superstitious place. This was a place of paganism. It was actually a shrine to the Greek god Asclepius. Asclepius was the Greek god of medicine. And in Greek mythology, it was believed that Asclepius would bring healing to people who were sick. Now, you're probably somewhat familiar with the symbol for Asclepius, even if you've not known this before. Anytime you see this, maybe on the back of an ambulance, on a paramedic's uniform or an EMT's uniform, this is actually the symbol for Asclepius. And this is the healing symbol. And Asclepius was worshipped as a healing savior. Now, there were very few physicians at that time for those people. And only the very rich among the people at that time could actually afford to have a physician, could afford the work of a doctor. And so if you were poor and you were sick, you were out of luck. No doctor for you. You were pretty much on your own. But there was this legend that occasionally Asclepius or one of his messengers would come down to that pool in Bethesda and would stir the waters. And legend had it that the first person into the water, when the waters would stir, when the waters would bubble, that the first person in would be healed. Now, the archaeologists have uncovered that there was actually a reservoir of water underneath those pools. And this reservoir was uh, was fed by an underground spring. So this underground spring fed that reservoir, and that reservoir then would feed into the pool. And just like in other places, sometimes those springs bubble up. Well, when that spring would bubble up, the pool would bubble up. Uh, kind of like when you turn on the jets in a hot tub or a jacuzzi, the water bubbles up with the air. That's kind of what it was like in part of that pool. And you can imagine what would happen as soon as any of that water would start bubbling. Because you have all these hundreds of people there who are sick and hoping to get well. This place looked like death. This place smelled like death. And once those waters started bubbling, you can imagine the sounds, the sights, people pushing and shoving, the cries, the moans, the, the jeering, the yelling, trying to be the first one in to be the one to be healed. And so when one of the men lying there had been sick for 40, or sorry, for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked the guy, would you like to get well? Now, of all the people who were there, the hundreds of people at this pool of Bethesda, Jesus focused on one, on one guy in the sea of humanity, one guy in the midst of the multitude. But that's how Jesus is. Jesus always sees the one. He always focuses on the one. He went right to this man and singled this man out and asked him, seeking to help him. Jesus noticed him. And friends, Jesus does that for you as well. He sees you. He notices you. He cares for you. He desires to help you, to heal you, to save you. Now, we know that this paralyzed man was Jewish because later he goes to the temple and only the Jews would go to the temple. But as a paralyzed man, he would not have been allowed into the temple. 
In part, it's difficult for him to get there, but he would not be allowed in because his sickness would be seen as being from God for his sin. And so here he is in this pagan place seeking to get well. Maybe he's given up on God. Maybe he still believes in God, but he's unhappy with how his life has turned out and that God has allowed his life to go that way. So here he is turning to a pagan God, turning to a lesser God, turning to an idol, turning to superstition. And maybe he believes and he's just added something to it. Maybe he's just hedging his bets. But he knows the true God. He knows where true healing would come from. He knows who God really is. And he's turned from that. But Jesus goes to the very place where this man should not have been. And he seeks this man out and he asks him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Friend, does that seem like a strange question to you? I mean, after all, this guy's there at the well. He's begging to get in. Of course he wants to get well, doesn't he? Wouldn't you want to get, doesn't everybody want to get well? Not always, right? Not everyone does. Some of you, you have been complaining about your troubles for a very long time, but yet you have done nothing to get better. When my brother was little, there was a time when he had skinned his knee. And my dad had the magic potion to help us whenever we got hurt when we were little. It wasn't always just that he would tell us to rub some dirt on it or keep going. My dad would often give us a kiss, tell us that'll make it better. And simply by telling us that it was better, somehow in our brains we thought, oh, I'm better. But on this particular occasion, it did not work with my brother. So my dad sat down with him for a little bit poured a little bit of soda, and watched some cartoons with him. Well, after a few minutes, my dad could tell my brother was feeling better. He was fine. He asked me, well, you want to get up and play again? My brother said, no, I'm not feeling too good. Well, what will make it better? A hug? No, that won't help, Dad. A kiss? No, that won't help. Well, what will make it better? More Pepsi? (laughs) And friends, we can become a lot like that, can't we? We can grow so accustomed to the pain that we grow accustomed to the pampering. We become the victim and we like the attention. We like the Pepsi. We like the things that come along with that. Sometimes we can feed on the drama. Sometimes we lose sight of hope and we allow despair to take up residency in our hearts. Sometimes our identity becomes focused on the illness. Sometimes that thing that troubles us, whether it's physical or mental or relational, It becomes the thing that we allow to define us. Not just a defining part of us, but the thing that defines us. No longer do we have an addiction, we are the addict. No longer have we been divorced, we are the divorcee. No longer do we struggle with whatever this or that might be, but that is the thing that we allow to define us. Not just somebody who has experienced loss, but we are the widow or the widower. We haven't just had failure, we are failure. But friend, whenever we allow anything other than Jesus to define us, good or bad, that becomes a false identity. Those things are defining moments for us. They might be defining seasons for us. They help shape us. But Christ should define us. Who we are in Christ, who we are as children of God should be the defining characteristic of our lives. But sometimes we allow other things to become the defining characteristic for us. And we can become psychological and spiritual invalids, paralyzed by despair, paralyzed by doubt, paralyzed by pain. 
Sometimes getting well is seemingly too difficult. It requires humility. It requires change. It might require a lot of effort on the front end. We might miss out on some of the pampering. So when Jesus asks, do you want to get well? Some people will respond, no, I'd rather stay sick. Some people might even respond, no, I would rather be sick. In our world of identity confusion, there are those who even would choose to get sick. People who would choose to identify as transabled, transabled, able-bodied people who desire to be ill, who desire to be sick, who see themselves, who identify with sickness, even though their body works just fine as God intended, they desire to be disabled. And they would go so far even to self-harm. Some of these people go so far as to do harm to themselves, making themselves blind, creating other sicknesses, ingesting poisons into their system, desiring to have cancer, choosing to be in a wheelchair, even though their legs work just fine. Some of them would go so far as to seek out doctors to amputate them. Psychologists call this body image integrity disorder. And church, friends, our hearts should break For anyone, for everyone who has such a brokenness of the soul, who has such a broken perspective of themselves, such a broken identity, that they would choose that. We should hurt for them. We should pray for them. So, what about us? When Jesus asks, do you want to get well? What's your answer? Do you want to get well? When Jesus asked this to the paralyzed man, the guy responded, Sir, I can't, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. You gotta hear the whimpering, the whining in his voice. You can hear the despair. I'm paralyzed. I can't make it into the water. Somebody always gets there first. I'm last in line. Well, Jesus told the man, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Not the only time Jesus had said that to someone. We Looked at that last week when Jesus said this to another man. Well, instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. Now, why? Why on earth would anyone object to one person healing another person, no matter what day it is? Well, we need to understand how big of a deal the Sabbath was to those first century Jewish people. It was a really big deal to honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one of the Ten Commands. It's command number four that God gave us, found in Exodus. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, in an attempt to honor the Sabbath and to keep the Sabbath holy, the religious leaders throughout the centuries had created several other laws to act as kind of a fence around God's command. They had added all these other laws to it to protect God's law. And that came from really good intentions. Sometimes we talk of the Pharisees as though they were just a bunch of hypocritical jerks, a bunch of religious bad guys in the Bible story. But these men actually began with good intentions. They wanted to honor God. They wanted to honor God's law. They wanted to honor the scriptures. They wanted to honor God's holiness. And their attempt to do so had led them off track. But their intentions were good. 
And although these rules that they created around God's law were not found in the Bible, they were created there to protect what was found in the Torah, what was found in the Old Testament law. So their intentions were good to protect God's laws to keep them holy. And on each of the commands, they created several rules. In fact, on just this one command to honor the Sabbath, they had 39 different categories of rules. Not 39 different rules, 39 categories of rules on how to honor the Sabbath. And one of those laws was, was that you could not carry anything on the Sabbath. So these religious leaders said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law does not allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Now, God's law did not forbid that. Their tradition did. Their tradition was known as the tradition of the elders. These extra rules, these extra laws to protect what's in the Bible. And we get that. We're familiar with that. Sometimes we do the same thing. We add extra rules that are not in the Bible, but we do it to protect what is in the Bible in an effort to keep us holy, to keep us from breaking God's commands. But what we need to be careful of is to make sure that our tradition is actually in keeping with God's heart, not with our own intention. We need to make sure that our traditions do, in fact, honor God and are in accordance with his word. Well, the man, who, uh, the man replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. And when the guy who heals me after 38 years tells me to walk, I'm walking. He tells me to roll up the mat, I'm rolling it up. Well, who said such a thing as that, they demanded. Who was the man? Well, the guy said, I don't know. (laughs) For Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. Don't you love that? Jesus is kind of sneaky, right? Sneaky Jesus. Here he is. He shows up on the scene. He heals a guy who's been sick for 38 years. And then he sneaks off into the crowd. It's a walk-by healing. Jesus just shows up, heals this guy, and then leaves. But afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple and told him, Now you are well. So stop sinning. Now you're well, so stop sinning. Or something even worse may happen to you. Now there's been speculation throughout the years as to what Jesus was referring to when he told the man to stop sinning. Because in that culture, it was assumed for both Jewish people and the non-Jewish people thought this, that if someone were sick or disabled or ill, that it was a result of something they or their parents had done, some sin of them or some sin of their parents. And so people would speculate, well, did Jesus tell this man to stop sinning because maybe his sin actually had caused him to be sick? I think the answer is a little more obvious than that. This man had turned to superstition. He had gone to Bethesda, to the pool. He was there where people worshiped the Greek god Asclepius. That was sin. The first command, no other gods before me, no other gods. And so here this man had turned to another God. It seems obvious that that is the sin Jesus is referring to. Don't turn away from God. Don't turn to any other gods. Don't turn to some false God. That's not where your healing, that's not where your hope will be found. Well, After this conversation with Jesus, the man who had been healed went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. They had asked, who's the man who healed you? The guy comes back and says, Jesus is the man. If you get nothing else from today's message, just remember that. Jesus is the man. All right? And so here it is. The Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working 
and so am I. God never takes a day off, so I don't take a day off. Well, the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him after that. For Jesus not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. All right, time out. Because when we pray, oftentimes we will pray to God as father. Are we making ourselves equal with God when we say that? No. So what does this mean? Well, at that time in that culture, no one would refer to God as father. He was too revered. He was too holy. He was too other. And so Jesus is introducing a brand new concept, a revolutionary concept, that God is father. That God can be known as dad. Now this challenges everything. But for Jesus to say it in the way he did at the time he did, in the context of history as he did, that linked him with God as son. That linked him as God. Whoa. That's a little different for us. The reason we can refer to God as father is because we have been adopted into the family. When we surrender to God, when we acknowledge that God is God alone and that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then we are adopted in as sons and daughters of God. Now, we're adopted in as co-heirs of heaven. We get to enjoy what Jesus will lay before us, but we are not the same as Jesus. He's a different kind of son, not adopted in. He is the only begotten son of God, the only from the same essence of God. And so that's the difference here. Well, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does also. Like father, like son. Like father, like son. I'm just doing what my daddy does. That's what Jesus tells him. Now, I know some guys who dream of their kids taking over the family business. I I know some guys who dream of their kids going into the same line of work as them. I know other guys whose hope is that their kids will choose a very different line of work and have a much better life than what they have. But of all the things we could hope for our kids, of all the things we could wish for our kids, dads, let me just speak plainly to you today on this Father's Day. Of all the things we could want for our kids and instill in them, let's encourage our kids to be about the Father's business. And in case you're uncertain what the Father's business is, let me make it clear for us. It's to help everyone everywhere find and follow Jesus. To evangelize the world for God's glory. And to disciple people into a lifetime of faithfulness in the followership of God. That's what we're to be about. Some of us are really good at being political activists, at being political evangelists, at being evangelists for our particular cause or on particular issues or particular parties or any number of things. We all know how to tell everybody else about our favorite movie, about our favorite places to eat, our favorite vacation spots. What God invites us to do is to have an even greater zeal to tell everyone about our God, about our Savior. And that must include our kids. If we're going to lead everyone to find and follow Jesus, it begins at home. It begins with the little ones in our house. And maybe you're an older dad and your kids are no longer in the house. It's still up to you to continue to disciple your kids. 
And if you're not sure how to do that, our family ministry would love to come alongside you. They would love to help you. Tyler, our student guy, Tori, our elementary gal, Susan, our little kid gal, who are here to help you, to come alongside you, to resource you, to chat with you about what it looks like for you to be the primary disciple maker in your home to raise your kids to follow Jesus. Now, sometimes my kids try to figure out if they look more like dad or if they look more like my wife, Jen. And they'll talk about, well, which features they have that came from mom and which ones come from dad. Oh, I think I have dad's lips. Oh, I think I have dad's eyebrows. I think I got dad's nose. And sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, oh, you know, Fitz, your kids really look like you. Sometimes they'll say that right to my kids. Oh, you look like your dad. And I always feel bad for my kids because my wife is so much better looking than I am. I'm married so high up. So kids, sorry about that, but you're stuck with the genetic lottery. (laughs) So... It's a given that my kids are going to have some of the same looks as their dad. It's a given that my kids are going to have some of the same mannerisms as their dad. But my hope, my goal is not to get my kids to look like me or act like me. My hope, my goal is to get my kids to look and act like their heavenly father. And dads, that should be your goal and your hope also. Not that your kids would look like you and act like you, but they would look and act like the father. And the best way to get our kids to look like their father, the best thing we can do is for us to follow the father. And Jesus shows us how. The best thing we can do is to follow Jesus' steps and teach our kids to live like him and love like him. Because Jesus is always about the father's work. That's what he's told us. He says, I do nothing except what I see the father doing. Jesus models the father's heart. So if we model our lives after Jesus will follow our father in heaven. And fathers, for us to do this means more than just dropping our kids off at church events or church camp. It means more than just bringing them to church once a week or once in a while. It means we pray for our kids, that we would pray over our kids. One of my favorite things to do is when my kids are sleeping, I peek in on them and I pray over them. Sometimes they wake up and it freaks them out. That's all right. (laughs) It's fun too. (laughs) I just think God loves a good laugh. Now that they're teenagers, they don't wake up though. So that hasn't happened in a really long time. One of the best things we can do is read the Bible with our kids, to have spiritual conversations with our kids. But let me get really honest. I know that's intimidating. I know for some of you, you don't feel equipped. You don't feel very mature in your own faith. You don't feel like a very good example. So you avoid that stuff. And you pretend that your relationship with God is private and you just outsource it to the church. But you know what? Your kids see through that. And the older they get, the more they'll see through that. And don't be afraid of that. But just know that's the reality. You can't pretend to follow God and raise your kids to actually follow God. A few years ago, one of my buddies finally admitted to himself that he'd become grossly overweight. And he knew his kids were going to grow up and see that. And they were already noticing. And so he determined to get healthy, in part for his kids. So he has lost over 100 pounds. He's about half the man he once was. Now, that did not happen all at once. It's been a two-year journey. It happened counting calories for one day and taking one walk that first day. And then one day became two. 
and then three, and then five, and then 20, and then 50, and then a year passed. And he stayed with it, and the walk eventually became a run. And he stayed with it, and now he is very healthy. It all began with just one moment. Years ago, when I first visited the gym, I was, I was pretty scrawny. I'd been a distance runner, and I was a pretty slow distance runner even at that time. And I was really intimidated because I walked into the, the high school weight room at the same time some football and players and wrestlers were in there. Being a slow, scrawny distance runner next to linemen and state champion wrestlers was maybe one of the most intimidating times in my life. But a couple of those guys took all the weight off the bar and then coached me how to lift it. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. But now, years later, I exercise daily, and I can lift and push a whole lot more weight, and I'm way healthier, and I'm quite a bit stronger than I once was. I'm still not a state champion wrestler. I'm still not a strong football player caliber, but I'm a lot stronger than I once was. And that did not happen overnight. It happened with regular, intentional activity. Same thing is true of our faith. One prayer a day, one scripture a day, one devotion a day, one chapter out of Quest 52, one conversation with our kids, and maybe your kids have learned more about Jesus in Sunday school than what you think you already know, and that's okay. You just have that conversation, and eventually you'll be running with Jesus. Just stay with it and stay at it. And one of the best things you can model for your children, no matter what stage of life you're in, is that you are willing to get better, you are willing to do better, you are willing to pursue God with more intensity today than you did yesterday. And if you do that every day, eventually you'll find yourself having a sweet relationship with God and an even sweeter relationship with your family. You know, for Jesus, he was all about the Father's work, totally about the Father's work. And with every miracle Jesus performed, it was never just about the miracle. None of the miracles were about the miracle themselves. Each of the miracles was really a sign about Jesus' identity. They were miracles and wonders and signs. And with each miracle Jesus performed, he's speaking sign language to let us know he is God. The sign of the miracle was that he is God. And Jesus here in this encounter shows his power over the false saviors and the false gods. He shows his power over false rules-based religion. It wasn't just a random act of kindness. It wasn't just a random walk-by healing. <laughs> Jesus was intentional. He was purposeful. He was strategic. He chose that place because it was a place of Satan's activity and paganism and false gods. He chose that man because he was a Jewish man who had walked away from God and turned to false gods. He chose that time because it was the Sabbath and he wanted to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord even over the Sabbath. And this became a turning point in Jesus' ministry because from that time forward, the religious leaders were out to kill him. You know, the saddest part of the story is that the man who was so desperate to receive healing from God, so desperate for a miracle from God, totally missed God when he showed up in his face because he turned away from God. And the religious leaders who were so intent on honoring God and honoring his holiness and keeping God's law and setting up all these other religious rules to protect the law, they missed God because they were so focused on the rules. It's heartbreaking. And I wonder if maybe some of that is true for us. I wonder if sometimes we miss God because we've turned to something else looking 
for what we need from God that will only come from God. Friend, do you ever find yourself seeking to meet your needs outside of God? Sitting at the pool of Bethesda, waiting for Asclepius to stir the waters? Maybe you've turned to your horoscope or astrology. You've turned to some of that new age wisdom. You're listening in to all the things the culture would tell you. You've bought the newest self-help books. Have you turned to anything other than God? Maybe you just add Jesus into the blender of your life. Well, we'll just mix Jesus in with everything else. And you're turning to him as the newest fad to help you. But it just doesn't work that way. See, it's not Jesus plus anything else. It's either Jesus alone or it's not Jesus at all. And so we've got to be really careful of the false gods and idols in our lives. And we've got to make sure we turn to God and God alone. Maybe, maybe we're a little bit like some of those religious leaders Jesus was dealing with. And we find that our version of Christianity actually gets in the way of us loving people who God loves deeply. Do you ever have religious rules that add burden instead of blessing to you or to others? You know, the Sabbath was actually God's gift to us. A day of rest, a day to honor God, to be grateful, to experience the depth of relationship with the God who created us and formed us in his own image, to know him and be known by him. What a beautiful gift. It wasn't set like, you know, the Sabbath was created for the blessing of us. We were not created for the Sabbath. Jesus deals with all that on another occasion as well. Do we ever, do you ever find yourself being so focused on rules that you miss relationship? The hard thing is that this is really difficult to notice in ourselves because most of you probably agree with what I'm saying right now. Challenge is you have somebody else in mind like, oh yeah, so-and-so needs to hear that. Now, don't nudge the person next to you. Like, I know what you're thinking. Like, right? like, but that's typically how we are. We agree with these, but we always have somebody else in mind. Oh, that other person who turns outside of God. Oh, that other person who set up all the rules. The problem is we need to look in the mirror. Where do we, as individuals, turn to something other than God? Where do we turn to a broken form of religion? You know, what I love about both these interactions is how Jesus demonstrated love. He loved the guy who'd walked away from God, and he still healed him. He loved those religious leaders and sought to draw them into relationship with the Father, to break them of those rules, to break them of how they'd gone astray. Say, no, 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 it's not just about the rules. It's about the relationship with the Father. And he desires to do the same for you. He desires to heal you. He desires to bring you into relationship with himself, with the Father. See, what the Son does always reveals the heart of the Father. The Son is always a reflection of the Father. And the Father's heart is always revealed through the Son. Always. Father's heart always revealed through the Son. We see it with every miracle, with every wonder, with every sign. We see it with every sermon, with every parable. We see it throughout the entirety of Jesus' life. And we never see it more clearly than at the cross. For God loved you so much that he gave his one and only begotten Son. That if you would believe in him, you would not perish, but you will experience full, overflowing, forever free life with him. What a beautiful truth, friend. What a beautiful truth. If you don't know 
the relationship with the Father. If all you've ever known is empty rules and broken rules, if you've only ever turned to others, to some lesser deity for your healing and your hope, then today on this Father's Day, my hope, my prayer is that you will turn to the Father for what you need. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are such a loving, good father. And God, we acknowledge that not everyone has had good experiences with dads. Not every dad has been a good dad. Today, as we celebrate, there are those who were never able to become dads. There were those who certainly have seen some pretty nasty things at the hand of their dad. And even the best dads among us are imperfect. So God, we're thankful that you are the perfect one. You love us with perfect protection and perfect provision, with a perfect heart that is for us and not against us. You desire not that we would perish, but that we would come to know you and join you in the glory of the happy ever after. God, thanks for that. Thanks for meeting us where we are. Thanks for loving us as we are. Thanks for drawing us near to you. God, for any who are far from you today, may they take the step today to enter into relationship with you. I pray that after this this service, they'll make their way to the next step area to have that conversation or they'll reach out to their host online saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to get to know my heavenly father. And for all of us who do know you, God, may we turn back to you. In any area that we've turned away from you, may we turn to you. In any way that we have so lessened the relationship with you to just make it about rules. God, may we break free from that. May we just run to our daddy's arms. May we just enjoy your heavenly embrace. God, we are so grateful to call you dad, to call you father, Abba. And so we pray this for your glory, for your praise. Lord, as we stand to sing now, may our voices, as they sing out to you, may it bring joy to your face on this Father's Day. And we pray it in the powerful name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen.